Luke chapter 13, your Bibles, and I'll begin reading in verse 6. He spake also this parable. A certain man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came and sought fruit thereon, and found none. Then said he unto the dresser of his vineyard, Behold, these three years I come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and find none. Cut it down, why cumbereth it the ground? And he answering said unto him, Lord, let it alone this year also, till I shall dig about it and dung it. Together in verse 9. And if it bear fruit, well. And if not, then after that thou shalt cut it down. And that's what we're preaching on. Are you playing games with God? Let's pray. We'll get right into it. Father, I pray now that you would bless the preaching of your word to the hearts of your people. That's always our desire. Now, Lord, we'll try to use some ability, some some lessons that you've taught us in delivering a sermon. Uh, we'll try to raise our voice at times. We'll try to move around. We'll try to maybe give a thought-provoking statement. But Father, all those are tools that we hope you use. The, the moving of hearts towards God can only be done by the Spirit of God. So Holy Spirit, we ask that you do that work in each heart and each life this morning. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Now sometimes people will caution you, maybe not if you just come Sunday morning, but if you start coming like back on Sunday night and you, wow, you start coming on Wednesday night, maybe you start going soul winning, maybe you start tithing. When you really start getting carried away, some people will caution you about getting too much religion. They say, no, no, don't get, don't get too much now. Don't, don't get carried away. Uh, you know, don't, don't, be, don't become a fanatic about this thing. Don't let, now here's, here's what they say, don't let religion get in the way of how you're going to live. I mean, you've you got to live. Don't let religion kind of start dictating how you, I mean, it's, God forbid that we'd actually start doing what the Bible says. That would be weird now, wouldn't it? And so that's how the world thinks. The world thinks religion is fine as long as religion can be contained on a Sunday morning only and never affect or impact the rest of your life. That's how the world thinks. That's how they think about religion. Religion is simply rituals you go through to make you feel better or participate in a cultural way, but it really doesn't impact or affect the way you live. And for the most people and for the most of the world, that's the kind of religion they have. But that's not what the Lord wants us to have. That's not how we're supposed to be living as believers. Now, when you think about fanaticism, if you think about joining a cult, you know, cutting all your hair off so you're bald, putting some type of gown on, standing on the corner hitting a tambourine, okay, that's not what we're talking about. We're not talking about that type of fanaticism. We're not talking about joining a cult. But if you're talking about putting the Bible in practice 24 hours a day, seven days a week in your life, that is the fanaticism we're talking about, because that's Bible living. Understand this this morning. Biblical Christianity is, now watch, by design, God's design, by design, an extreme lifestyle as it compares to the rest of the world. Just living the way the Bible tells us to live is an extreme lifestyle as it's compared to the rest of the world. Living for Jesus is extremely different than living for self or living for the world. Now, let me stop because you say, okay, I know that's how the Baptists think. I know that's how 
Pastor White thinks. I know that's how some people think. The question is, what, what does the Bible say about this? Is there any biblical support for what I just said? Biblical Christianity is by design an extreme lifestyle as it compares with how most of the world lives. Well, let's see. Let's look at some verses together this morning. And let's start in the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 18. Woe unto the world because of offenses. For it must needs be that offenses come, but woe to that man by whom the offense cometh. Now let me just stop for a moment because you can almost see a foreshadowing of Judas Iscariot there in that verse. We, if we live for Jesus, you are going to be offended. You're going to be attacked. You're going to be laughed at. Things are going to happen. It is not our job to, in, in, a, in, a, in this idea about living for Jesus, it's not our job to defend ourselves. He talks about turning the other cheek. This is what he's tar- talking about. He's not talking about someone breaks your house 3 o'clock in the morning, turn the other cheek. No, that's, you find a second gun. That's what you do. Uh, so that's not, he's not talking about turning the other cheek when someone is actually breaking in your house trying to hurt your family. He's talking about when you are being attacked or you are being uh, lied about or criticized for living for Jesus in, a, in an area of spiritual life, when you're being attacked, when you're being offended, you turn the other cheek. And you say, but it doesn't seem right. They're getting away with it. No, they're not getting away with it. You have an advocate. And you have someone who is keeping track of these things. And that's what the Lord says in verse 7. Woe to him by whom offenses come. Now, we may not vindicate ourselves, but the Lord has a way of vindicating us. But let's continue on in verse 8. Wherefore, if thy hand... Or thy foot offend thee, because now there's a shifting of what he's going to be talking about. Wherefore, if thy hand or thy foot offend thee, cut them off and cast them from thee. It is better for thee to enter into life halt or maim, rather than having two hands or two feet, to be cast into everlasting fire. Verse 9, if thy eye offend thee, pluck it out and cast it from thee. It is better for thee to enter into life with one eye, rather than having two eyes, to be cast into hell fire. Now, the main focus of this verses right here is about salvation. That's the main focus. How do I know that? Well, look at verse 8. Cast in everlasting fire. Look at verse 9. Cast in the hell fire. What he's saying is this. Whatever, whatever it means for you to get saved, do it. Now, I don't think he means literally we're, we're walking around chopping off our hands or ripping out our eyeball. What he's saying is this. As extreme as that may sound, it's better to do an extreme thing and go to heaven than not and go to hell. There's people, there are people who say, well, Pastor White, I, I, can't get, I can't be a born-again person. If I were to give up my faith, and what they mean is how they were grown up, maybe in Catholicism or what, Mormonism, whatever it is. If I were to walk away from that, my family would uh, uh, disinherit me. My family would reject me. It is better to be rejected by your family and be born again than to be accepted by your family and go to hell. That's what Jesus is saying. It is better to lose. If, if, you're, if you're, I don't know if this is the case anyone here, but if, if you have some type of multimillionaire father who says, if you get saved, I will disinherit you. And you say, I, I would lose millions if I, if I came to Jesus Christ. It is better to be poor in heaven and go to heaven than be rich and go to hell. That's just what Jesus is saying. Whatever it means, whatever sacrifice, whatever offense would happen, do it so you are born again. Now, that's an extreme, if you will. There's an extremism to that. Let me tell you, it's worth whatever it means to get saved and go to heaven, even though no matter how extreme it may be. So this is what the Lord's talking about. Salvation is worth the sacrifice. 
But we're not done there. Let's look at Matthew 10. I, again, I'm trying to lay a foundation so we all have the mindset that what the world calls extremism is basically biblical Christianity. They use these little cute little phrases to make us look like we're weird when all we're trying to do is look like Jesus. But by the way, Jesus looks weird because that's why they crucified him. Matthew 10, verse 37. He that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. He that loveth son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he that taketh not his cross and followeth after me is not worthy of me. He that findeth his life shall lose it. He that loses his life for my sake shall find it. Not only is salvation worth the sacrifice, he tells us this, that the love for Christ must be first. Now, I've had multiple people fuss with me about this, what I'm about to say next. Your number one obligation to love is Jesus. That's more than your parents, more than your children, more than your spouse, more than your country, more than anything else. People say, whoa, wait, Pastor White, you, you, are you telling me that God expects me to love God more than my wife or husband or children or mom or dad? I'm telling you exactly what the Bible says. He said, but Pastor White, that's really extreme. No, that's biblical. Our love for the Lord must be paramount, must be priority. It must come first. I mean, just as a little side note, let me say this, because you really can't love others the way you should unless you love the Lord the way you should. It's our love for the Lord that teaches us and helps us and, and motivates us to love others. The truth is this, many believers wouldn't love anyone if it wasn't for the Lord working in their life. And their love for the Lord now motivates them in their love for others. But nonetheless, it says, more than me. More than me. You see that right there in verse 37. Let me show you one more place. Again, I'm trying to get, get you to understand this. We're not just being weird for the sake of weird. We're not being fanatic for the sake of being fanatic. We're not extreme for the sake of extreme. We're trying to live the Bible. Philippians 3. Paul says this, Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, dung basically manure, that I may win Christ, and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, a righteousness which is, uh, which is of God by faith, that I may know him, the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings, being made conformable to his death. So we said salvation is worth the sacrifice. Love for Christ must be first. Third thing we see is this. We are to pursue Christ more than anything else. We pursue Christ more than our job. We pursue Christ more than our hobbies. We pursue Christ more than our pleasure. Our pursuit of Christ is first and paramount. As a believer, the number one thing I'm trying to accomplish is to be more like Jesus, to draw closer to Jesus, to be more obedient to Jesus, more submitted to Jesus. This is biblical Christianity. So I'll say it again. Biblical Christianity is, by design, an extreme lifestyle as it compares with how most of the world lives. Now, let me give you the transition now that we're making from the introduction slash foundation to the application. Here's the transition. If you claim to be living for Jesus, if someone would say, do you live, oh, live for Jesus? Oh yeah, I, I live for Jesus every day, every day I'm living for Jesus. Good. I hope that's true, but let, now watch. If you claim to be living for Jesus, does this, again in air quotes, extreme lifestyle describes you? Or 
are you just playing games? Because if this extreme lifestyle doesn't, doesn't really describe the way you're living for Jesus, I'm saying you're, you're probably playing games. Because this is biblical Christianity. Now here's the backup question, or the, not the backup, here is the, the, the follow-up question, that's what I wanted, follow-up question. So here's the first question. If you claim to be living for Jesus, this extreme lifestyle doesn't describe you, or, and this, does this extreme lifestyle describe you, or are you playing games? That's the first question. Here's the follow-up. And if someone is playing games with God, how will God respond? We can play games with each other. But if you're playing games with God, because you claim to be living for Jesus, and the Lord knows this is really not how you're doing it, how will God respond? Now that's really the direction we're going to go in this message. The question is, are you playing games with God? And I, the, the underlying statement about that, underlying understanding of this is this, you're playing games. If this, what we just talked about, the salvation is worth the sacrifice, love for Christ must be first, pursue Christ more than anything else. If that's not how you're living for Jesus, then you're kind of playing games. You're really not serious. You're really not gung-ho. You're really not sold out as the Lord wants you to be. So the follow-up question, which is the main thrust of the message now, how does God respond? Is God just going to be like, oh, well, there's another one? Or is God saying, uh, mm-mm, nope. I'm not going to let this go on. So I'm going to give you three thoughts this morning back to our text that I think helps understand because this is something the Lord is speaking. He's speaking in relationship primarily to the Jewish nation, but by extension to all of God's people, which would include us. So let's go back now to our text, Luke 13. And look with me at verse 6. And we'll see the first application. He spake also this parable. Now notice how he describes what's going on. A certain man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard. How do you think it got there? Let me ask you. Do you think this this fig tree is going, hey, here's a vineyard. I think I'll go sit. Okay, now I'm in this guy's vineyard. Did the fig tree plant the fig tree? How did the fig tree get in this man's vineyard? This man put it there. There's a plan and a purpose. The fig tree just didn't show up. He didn't just walk in and say, whoa, what do you know? There's a, there's a fig tree in my vineyard. How did that get there? He planted the, vineyard, the, the fig tree in the vineyard. Okay, let's continue on. Verse 6. A certain man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came and sought fruit thereon and found none. So he showed up. He planted that fig tree. He showed up, and you'll see in the text more than one time, he showed up with the expectation that there be what? Fruit, figs on the tree. He planted it for a purpose. The purpose was to get the fruit. He didn't just plant it like, oh, that'd be nice. It would be a nice fig tree. Everyone likes how fig trees look. No, I planted a fig tree because I expect something from this fig tree. That brings us to our first thought this morning. And that is this, number one, God has an expectation for your life. By extension or by application, we are the if you will, the fig tree that God has planted. God has purposely done something. Every life, every single life here, and every single life in the almost 8 billion people who inhabit our world, every life is here on purpose. And that purpose has been decided by God to fulfill His will. 
Every single life that's here is here on purpose. There's no accidents. No life has ever been uh, uh, given, has been created, has come about by accident. Now, people talk that way, but God doesn't talk that way. No one is an accident. No one's an uh uh-oh. People will say, well, uh, and, and people will be very unkind in the way they talk about that. But every single person on this earth is here because God purposely gave them life. The only way you ha- can have physical life is by God. I, okay, I, I understand the birds and the bees. I understand the physical manifestations and how things happen. Okay, I, I understand that part. Let me tell you this, but it doesn't always work that way. If God does not put the life in the womb, the, there's no life in the womb. By the way, that's why I'm absolutely adamantly opposed to abortion. Because if there's a life, there's life because God put it there. And man has no reason to murder that unborn baby just because it's, 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 it's not convenient at the moment. And so there's life, and there's life because God has put the life. And every single person here, you're here because God has given you life. It doesn't matter where you grew up. It doesn't matter who your parents are. It doesn't matter your abilities. It doesn't matter your education. It doesn't matter your, your, your economic level. You have life because God has given you life, and he gave you life because he had a purpose for that life based on his will. He didn't just give you life and go, man, what am I going to do with that person? God already had a will. God already had a a plan. God already had a purpose. And he gave you life to further that. Now, let me give you a couple things about this. First thing I want you to understand is this, that God has an eternal purpose. Before there ever was, ever was an earth, before there ever was an Adam and Eve, there was a God who had a purpose for all of this. Let me show you two verses together. Look at the top one, Isaiah 46.10. Notice what the Bible says, declaring the end, the very end of all things, from the beginning, and from ancient times, the things that are not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure. So here's God at the very beginning. He hasn't created anything yet. And he knows how every single thing is going to end up. He knows his purpose and his plan, how everything is going to end up. And from the very beginning, he said, I am creating all things so that that end, that counsel, that will is going to be fulfilled. Before I created anything, I had a purpose and a plan for all things to culminate in my, my eternal will, my eternal purpose. Look at Ephesians 3.11. According to the eternal purpose which he purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord. So he, he in himself had his own purpose for all these things. So God has an eternal purpose. God has an expectation for your life because he has an eternal purpose for all things. Let me show you another verse. Jeremiah. The, uh, then the word of the Lord came to me, Jeremiah speaking, saying, Before I formed thee in the belly, I knew thee. And before, I came as, before thou camest forth out of the womb, I sanctified thee. And I ordained thee a prophet unto the nations. He's saying the same thing. Uh, 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 Jeremiah, before you ever were formed in your mother's womb, I already knew all things... I already had a purpose for your life, a plan for your life, a desire for your life, a will of God for your life. And he's saying that to each, each of us. Before you ever came from your mother's womb, there's already a purpose and a plan for your life. God is, God is not trying to find something for you to do. God already has something for you to do. He has a purpose and a plan from the day of your birth, actually before the day of your birth. He's always had that purpose and plan. So God has an eternal purpose. And God gave you life with that purpose in mind. Let me show you one more verse, Romans 12. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, 
holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Reasonable means logical, makes sense. This is what makes sense to serve Him. Why? Verse 2. And be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So he's saying that your life would be in harmony with, would go along with what his will is. Our job as believers is not try to simply come up with our own plan, but to submit to the purpose and the plan of God for our life that he already has for us. So God is an eternal purpose. God gave you life with that purpose in mind. God saved you with that purpose in mind. So God has this expectation for your life. I'm going to say it, say it again very clearly. Your life is not accidental. Your life is not accidental. So why do we live that way? Why do we live like our life is just here by mistake? Like we're just, just, we're just floating through, this, through life. Well, someday, somehow, somewhere, maybe I'll figure out what the will of God is. Do you not know God has a purpose and a plan for your life? Should not that drive you? Should you not wake up in the morning and say, what is the purpose and the plan for my life? Now, for me, I, I don't, I don't, I don't want to say it's easier. What I knew at 17 exactly what God's will for me, full-time ministry. And that has been the driving uh, motive, driving engine of my life. It's how I eat, how I sleep, how I think, how I plan, how everything is about this is the will of God. Now I know, okay, you're not called to full-time service like I am, and I'm not saying you have to be. But I'm going to tell you, God has a will for you just like he has for me. And it should be what moves us, what, what moves us down, if you will, the track of life. We ought to get in the morning thinking, I have a life that God has given me today. What is the purpose and the plan of God for me? It's not just to make money. Not wrong with making money, but it's more than that. It's not wrong with just having a bunch of friends. Not wrong to have a bunch of friends, but life is much more than that. It's not just to have a little bit of pleasure or, or, or have a little fun. Not wrong with having fun. Not wrong with having pleasure as long as it's biblical and right and all those good things. But it's wrong to live for those things apart from the will of God. How does the will of God, the purpose of God, the plan of God impact our life? God has an expectation for our life. He's always had it. It's always been that way. Each of us is like that fig tree. We have been planted. Now watch, because I'm going to slow down because there's a slight little change here. Each of us is like that fig tree. We have been planted with an expectation. And that expectation is fruitfulness. He didn't plant a fig tree just so there would be a fig tree. He planted a fig tree so there would be figs. He still has the fig tree in Luke 13. What he's upset about, he ain't getting figs. That's what's bothering him. I didn't plant you just to be there. I planted you to produce. I want something from you. I've invested in you, and I expect something coming back from you. So we have been planted, given life, with the expectation of fruitfulness. God gave us life on purpose. Why are we wasting it? So as to make it more pointed. God did not give us life so we can guzzle our beer, shoot up our drugs, and live for pleasure and ignore God. It is foolish to think that your life Think of your life as anything other than a purposeful part of God's eternal plan. Do not waste your life living for the world. God gave you life for a purpose and a plan with an expectation of fruitfulness. So the question of the, of the, of the 
morning, are you playing games with God? And I said, if you are, how will God respond? Well, the first thing we understand that God has this expectation. Now, what else do we notice from our text? Go back with me to Luke 13. And look with me at verse number 7. Verse 7 and verse 8. Then said he unto the dresser of his vineyard, Behold, these three years I come seeking fruit on this fig tree and find none. Cut it down. Why cometh it the ground? And he answering said unto him, Lord, let it alone this year also, till I shall dig about it and dung it. That brings us to our second thought. Now let me back up so we understand the picture the Lord has given us. There's this vineyard. There's this fig tree. It's supposed to be bearing fruit. It's not. And so he's coming these multiple years looking for figs. Now, I think we can infer from what the Lord is saying that every time he comes, he's trying to do something else. Maybe trying this or trying that. Finally, he's like, man, I've, I've done enough of this fig tree. Let's just... And the guy says, let's try one more thing. Let's give it one more shot. Now, that's important to understand when I give you this point two, the second application, and that is this. God is working in your life. If there is not fruitfulness, if, if your life isn't doing what the Lord expects it from, he's not just going like this, oh, well, I don't know. They're just the way they are. No, he's active. He's looking, saying, hey, I, I, where's the fruit? Where's the figs? Let's try this. Let's try that. Do this. He's working, trying to get the fruit that he expects from your life. God is working in our lives to bring about this expectation of fruitfulness. Now watch this statement. You may live apart from God. You have free will. You may live apart from God. But God does not live apart from you. You can ignore him. doesn't mean he's ignoring you. You can say, well, I'm not going to think about God, talk about God. I'm not going to have anything to do with God. But you can't stop God from having something to do with you. He's just going to just say, Okay, well, you know, I'm just going to leave you alone. Now, he may walk away. That's his choice. But you can't make him not work in your life. God is actively at work in our lives to bring us to repentance and submission to himself. Now, what does this mean? Well, to the unsaved this morning, that means he's bringing you to a knowledge of your sin. You know, some people get mad at church. Well, when I come to church, you always make me feel bad about my sin. Well, you know, that's really the point of it. We're supposed to be doing that. If you come in your sin, and you, if you come in like, uh, I don't know, maybe you're, maybe you're stealing cars, okay? And you're like, oh man, maybe I shouldn't steal cars. And you leave this morning thinking, man, it's a good thing to steal cars. Okay, we've kind of blown it. We've kind of messed things up. You should feel bad. If you have clear, known sin in your life, and you come to a church that's preaching the Bible, you should walk out feeling real bad about that sin. That's the idea of preaching. So to the unsaved, it's to bring you to the knowledge of your sin, the reality of an eternal hell. You know what I believe? I believe there's a place called a lake of fire where the worm dies not, and there's weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. It's completely dark, but yet all the fire is there. And you're there forever, and there's never any less. Sometimes there's more. There's never any less of a punishment for eternity for those who die 
without Jesus Christ. I believe that because that's what the Bible teaches. So the unsaved, God is trying to bring you to the knowledge of your sin, to that knowledge of the reality of an eternal hell, and therefore the reality of the necessity of coming to Christ and being born again. We see that in the life of the Apostle Paul, Acts chapter 9. And Saul, yet breathing out threatening, Saul and Paul is the same fellow. And Saul, yet breathing, breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord, went unto the high priest and desired of him letters to Damascus, to the synagogues, that if he found any of this way, Christian way, Bible way, being born again, whether they were men or women, he might bring them bound unto Jerusalem. And as he journeyed, he came near Damascus, that's where he's going, and suddenly there shined round about him a light from heaven. Now it's bright, knocks him down, everyone else is stunned. Verse 4, And he fell to the earth and heard a voice saying unto him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? Verse 5, And he said, Who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom thou persecutest. There's a lot being taught in these verses, but I'm going to just focus on the end of verse 5. It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks, to kick against, to push away, to, to resist. And the pricks are all the pokes and all the convictions and all the things the Lord's doing to get his attention. What he's saying is, Saul, you can try to do all the things you want to do apart from me, but you know in your heart and in your life, I keep poking at you, keep, keep pricking your heart, keep trying to get your attention about these things. There's conviction in Saul's life. There's maybe memories coming back to him, maybe regrets, maybe failure. The Lord is using these things to bring him to the end of himself. We had a guy here, Richard Schuler, who was a former Marine. He was not an ex-Marine. Never call him an ex-Marine. That was a long, heated discussion he would have with you. He's never an ex-Marine. He's a former Marine. He just is not currently in full-time service in the Marine Corps. And so uh, he was a former Marine who was doing pretty well. He was moving up the ranks. He was doing well and living like a Marine. What do you think that means? That means he was going to Sunday school, and no, that's not what it means at all. He was doing the exact opposite. He was living like a Marine. He had made a profession, kind of just a quick prayer, but he, he, he tells himself, he wasn't serious, didn't really mean anything to him. And he thought he, he had the world by the tail. He was doing well, moving up the ranks. He was a Marine, you know, strutting around, I'm a Marine, you know, and hey, I'm, I'm, I can whip the world. And if there's any left over, I'll, give, I'll save a few for you. But man, I'm a Marine, I can whip everyone. And so that's kind of, he, he was that way. But he also tells how the Lord kept speaking his heart about some things. And he just kept resisting it. And finally the Lord brought him to the end of himself. I won't go into a long story. But he, he, he was given an assignment, a, a, a recruiting assignment. He fell flat. First time in his Marine Corps uh, um, service, he failed at something. He failed flat. He was humiliated. And the Lord got his attention. And through that, he got saved. He got born again. Let me tell you, the Lord knows how to get your attention. And God is not going to quit working in your life as long as you have life. He's going to keep poking and keep convicting and you, he'll, it doesn't matter how miserable you are. What matters is, is what it takes to bring you to repentance and submission to him. And so God is at work in our lives. He has an expectation of fruitfulness, and therefore he's at work in our lives. That's what it means to the unsaved. What does it mean to the saved? Same thing. He's bringing us to this place that we need to surrender. The reality, okay, 
As the Lord begins, as a saved, born-again person, the Lord begins saying, you need to surrender, you need to surrender, you need to surrender. You're like, oh, I don't want to do it. I don't want to live that way. I don't want to be like those people. I don't want to have that lifestyle. And he keeps pushing and keeps pushing and keeps poking and, poking and keeps pricking your heart about these things. He brings you this need to surrender. The reality of facing Christ. That someday you're going to see him face to face and all the excuses are gone. All the excuses you have for not serving him, not living for him, they're all just gone. It's just you and Christ. The necessity of faithful obedience. Probably the most famous story is a man named Jonah. He was a prophet. God gave him a mission, and Jonah basically said, I ain't doing that. I ain't doing it. I'm going to do something else. Jonah chapter 1, verse 3, But Jonah rose up to flee unto Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Isn't that kind of funny? Here's a prophet thinking he's going to escape God's presence. It's funny how stupid we get when we get backslidden. And went down to Joppa, and he found a ship going to Tarshish, so he paid the fare thereof. And he went down into it to go with them unto Tarshish from the presence of the Lord, because, you know, God will never see me in Tarshish. But the Lord sent out a great wind into the sea. There's a mighty tempest in the sea, so the ship was like to be broken. Then the mariners were afraid and cried every man to his God and cast forth the wares that were in the ship into the sea to lighten it of them. But watch at the end of verse 5. But Jonah was gone down the sides of the ship and he lay and was fast asleep. Here's a guy who's like, I ain't doing it. I ain't doing it. I ain't doing it. Now, if you know the rest of the story, guess where Jonah ends up at? Nineveh. Took him a while. Took him a lot of lickings, but he went there. But God kept working in Jonah's life. Kept working in Jonah's life. Kept working in Jonah's life. So I tell you this morning about this idea about God is working in your life. Forget about coincidences. Well, isn't this a coincidence that I feel like the Lord is speaking to me about this and then this happened? What a coincidence. There's no coincidences. There's no fate. There's no luck. There is God moving in the hearts of people to bring them to a place of submission and surrender so, surrender so he gets the, the fruit that he's expecting from your life. Now you may be playing, but let me tell you, God is working. God is working in your life. So number one, God has an expectation. Number two, God is working in your life. Let me give you the more, most somber part of this. Brings us back to Luke 13. We read verse 6. We looked at verse 7 and 8. Now look with me at verse 9. And if it bear fruit, well. And if not, then after that, thou shalt cut it down. We don't always know when the after that is, but there's an after that. And when the after that happens... It gets cut down. That brings us to our third application. Not only does it an expectation, expectation for your life, not only is God working in your life, but God has a deadline. People love to say, well, God's a God of the second chance, and that is true in, 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 in some philosophical way that is true. It's not necessarily true there, uh, um, biblically speaking, theologically speaking, and the reason is because God doesn't have to give you a second chance. God is not under some mandate to give everyone a second chance. Now, he's merciful and kind and gracious, and the truth is he, he, he doesn't give us a second chance. He gives us thousands of chances because he's a great, merciful God. Now, he's not required to. I mean, there's no, there's no like, you know, union rule that says, you know, you must give a second chance. Okay? But he, by his own mercy and kindness, gives us many a chances. 
That is true. But let me ask you this. What chance do you think you're on? See, people always say, well, God's a God of a second chance. Can I tell you, for most of us, second chance was a long time ago. We, we, we passed second chance. We've moved all the way around the board. We're, heading to, we're, we're getting ready to circle that. And so we've gone second chance and third chance and fourth chance and fifth chance and sixth chance and seventh and eighth and ninth. We may be on the hundredth chance. And we keep saying, well, God's a God of a second chance. Well, you might be looking for the hundred and second chance, not just the second. We need to understand this about God. Because this understanding that God has a deadline should bring us to a soberness of thinking. There's a time to quit playing games and get serious. So let me say this, and I say this in a very somber, sober way to get our attention about this. There are people, unsaved and saved, and we'll divide the two in a moment, but lump all people together to start with. There are people that last year, they were that fig tree that God said, give them one more year. Which means this year is their deadline. So let's make it a little bit more real, more applicable, so we understand where we're trying to go with this. If you apply it to unsaved people, last year, this generic unsaved person, whoever it may be, this unsaved person heard the gospel, and they did not get saved. And God said, I'm going to give them another year. I'm going to let that gospel sink in. I'm going to maybe send another soul winner, or maybe bring some other reminder. And God said, I, I, I'm going to give them another year. And that year came and passed. And they died without Christ, and right now they're in hell forever. Because they thought they had forever. It reminds me of a, of a, of a time we went to, uh, right below Toledo, and helped out a church like we're going to do with Heritage. And it was a, kind of a church restart. Wal, Walberg or something like that. Um, I forget the name of the town. It was a little town. But we went out there and we we're passing out John and Romans to this area and, and, and trying to get people the gospel. We left that night, that evening, a tornado came right in the place we were going soul winning. And people died. It could have been, it, it could have been like this. That someone that we handed the gospel tract to and they said, nah, I got plenty of time. Could have been one of them. If they died without knowing Christ as Savior, and this was now 10 years ago, something like that, 12 years ago, they've been in hell and will be in hell for eternity. We think we have forever. We only have until the deadline. There is an end expiration date, if you will, to your life. That end time. What does it mean for the saved? Last year, God convicted you. God tried to get your attention. Maybe you sat in a service like this. Maybe you're reading your Bible. Maybe you're talking to a fellow believer, and, and you said, man, uh, i got to quit playing games. I need to get serious about this. Last year, that was you. But that's it. You didn't do anything. You didn't repent. You didn't submit. You didn't surrender. This year, there are believers like that. Last year, who got convicted, did not repent. God gave you one more year. This is the year. They kept playing games. Now watch. 
and God took them home. Do you know that God takes the life of believers who won't live for him? Now, this is the type of preaching that people are like, nah, that's just what preachers say. That's really not in the Bible. God's not going to kill you because you don't live for him. Really? You, let me ask you, do you think God wouldn't kill you because you won't live for him? Because if you think that, you think wrong. God takes the life of believers who will not submit. At some point in time, God says, that's enough. You know, you're my child, and I'm, I'm sending you out in the world to, to live for me, and all you're doing is you're creating a lot more problems for me. You, you need to come home. Because you you, you, you're, you're not doing anything I tell you to do. Preacher, do you really think that? I really think that. You know why I really think that? Because the Bible really says that. Let me show you some verses, in case you're wondering. In fact, we look back to our text. What do you think it means when thou shalt cut it down? What do you think that means? Have you ever cut down a tree? Have you noticed when you cut down the tree, the part that you cut down doesn't keep growing? It does what? It dies. Cutting it down is not good for the tree if you want the tree to produce fruit. It's when it's done. So it's very clear what he means when he says, cut it down. Let me show you some other verses. Mark chapter 11. And on the morrow, because we're speaking of fig trees, when they were come from Bethany, he was hungry, he being Jesus, and seeing a fig tree afar off having leaves, he came, if happily he might find anything thereon. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves for the time of figs was not yet. Now, that's a little confusing, so let me explain what, what's going on. He comes to a fig tree, and it says he found nothing but leaves. And then it says the time of figs was not yet. It doesn't mean the time the figs would be there. What it means is the time of fig harvest. That's what he's talking about. That's the idea of what's going on. So there, he saw the leaves. The leaves meant there should be figs. He comes. There are no figs. There hasn't been a harvest time, so it's not like the tree had figs and someone took them. There should be figs there. He shows up. He's hungry, he being Jesus. He, he, it's almost like he goes, huh, no figs. Well, wait a minute. You're a tree. You have leaves. You have all the appearance. Let me make it more practical. You're a believer. You talk like a believer. You tell people you're a believer. You want people to think you're a believer. You have all the appearance, but there's no fruit. There's nothing what I expect from your life. How does Jesus respond to this fruitless fig tree. Verse 14, And Jesus answered and said unto him, No man eat fruit of thee hereafter forever. And disciples heard it. Verse 20, now we're jumping forward, so you see what happens at the end. And in the morning as they passed by, they saw the fig tree, the very same one, dried up from the roots. Dead. Genesis 7, here's another way. There's a lot of places. I'm just trying to give you more, I guess, figurative or more, you see the picture of it. And they, went in, and they went in unto Noah in the ark, two and two of all flesh, wherein is the breath of life. These are the animals, ark, flood, and think you know the story. Verse 16, and they that went in, went in, male and female of all flesh, as God had commanded him. But look at the end of verse 16, and the Lord shut him in. Okay, if you watch the, or, or see the pictures of how the world pictures the flood, you know, either they have a little boat and all these animals are hanging out. And here's, here's, here's Noah with an a, 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 a umbrella, okay? That's not what the ark was like. Go down to Kentucky. It's a big boat. It has a big door on the side. And here's, here's sometimes how we picture. We picture Noah being on, pulling the rope. And finally the door shuts. He says, okay, that's it. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says he, God shut him in. 
They all got in the boat and stood there, and God went, shut the door. No one's getting on now. Now, you know why I'm standing up here? Because for most believers, they're more offended me standing on the Lord's Supper table than believers not living for Jesus. This offends Christians more than Christians not living for Christ. I did it on purpose. So he shuts the door. Nope. God shuts the door. And everyone who's not on the boat, they could have yelled and screamed, Hey, we've changed our mind! Let us on! Take my baby! Here comes the water! Take my baby! Nope. God shut them in. There was a deadline for those people. God is a God of love. He's a God of righteousness as well. So, well, really, again, are you thinking today, okay, that's a long time ago. Today, are you thinking God, that's, okay, that's Old Testament. Do you think in the New Testament, God would take the life of believers? Watch this one. Now, we could look in Acts. We could look about the two who lied. I'm going to show you this one. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 28. But let a man examine himself. Check yourself out. Make sure that you really are living for me. And so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily. In other words, your, your, your talk is over here and your walk is over there. Eateth and drinketh damnation, judgment to himself. Not discerning the Lord's body. We're talking about the Lord's Supper, what some people call communion. For this cause, many... So he's talking about believers partaking the Lord's Supper, having sin in their life, known sin, and playing games. We're all sinners. But that's what we're talking about. We're talking about you know there's same things in your life. You're not making it right. You refuse to make it right. You're rebelling against God. You're being hard-headed against God, and you won't submit to God. That's what we're talking about. For this cause, you're taking the Lord's Supper with this sin in your life. For this cause, many are weak, and sickly, watch, and many sleep. They're dead. God said, I've taken lives of people in that church, church in Corinth, because they took the Lord's Supper with known sin, refused to submit, refused to repent, and I took their life. That's what he's talking about. For if we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged. I'm not being overdramatic. I'm trying to be clear about what the Bible teaches. God has a deadline. Comes to the point where he says, okay, game time's over. Now for some, a sermon like this is extreme radical fanaticism. That, that church must be some wacko cult. But we saw the verses. And I would ask you, is this not biblical? I, just show, I showed you the verses. I made the statement. I showed you the supporting verses. Here is God's warning to the religious people of today. We're still in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. But with many of them, God was not well pleased. He's referenced what happened back in the Old Testament. For they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things were our examples to the intent we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. Neither ye be idolaters, as were some of them, as is written. Now, again, here's a phrase that kind of throws people. The people sat down to eat and drink, and they rose up to play. 
Neither let us commit fornication, as some of them committed and fell in one day three and twenty thousand. Again, taking of lives. What does that mean? They, they, they sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Let me explain the story. I've got to hurry because I know we're, we're pushing against the clock. He's talking about a, uh, an account that happened in Exodus. Many of you are familiar with it. Moses is on the mountaintop. Aaron's there by himself. He's supposed to be the leader, but he's basically a pushover. And the people are like, give us a different God. Give us a different God. We don't want no more Jesus. We don't. It's too, it's too constraining. We want freedom and liberty. No, what they're saying is they want sin. So they made, him a, made a, a golden calf. And then what's interesting is they didn't have a feast to the golden calf. The Bible says we're going to have a feast to the Lord. They're couching their rebellion in Christian terms, which is what we tend to do. We use little cute phrases to explain our sinfulness. And so they had this golden calf, and then they had their normal religious service. That's the, when it says they sat down to eat and drink, it doesn't mean it was party time. I mean, part of the sacrifices, it's a long explanation, I'm just going to make it real short. Uh, part of these sacrifices, not only some were burnt on the altar, some were ate, ate by the people, some were eaten by the priests. It's, it's a long description. But the eating and the drinking was in the, in the uh, interaction of the worship service. Okay, Basically, eating and drinking, if you will, if we applied it to today, it's what we're doing right now. We're worshiping the Lord, doing what we're supposed to be doing. They were having their worship service. And as soon as they went through all of the, okay, I got to do this, and I got to do this, and I got to do this, and I got to do this. Okay, we checked off every box. Now, watch what happens. They rose up to play. Now, we're going to strip off our clothes, turn on the rock music, and we're going to have a big old party. And that's when Moses showed up and said, what are you doing, folks? What is going on here? You're claiming one thing and living another. And he said, when they came down, there fell in that one day three and 20,000 because they were playing games, and God said, that's enough of that. If, so let me put it again because sometimes I've got to be overly blunt so people understand what I'm saying. If your type of religion lets you go to church Sunday morning and to the bar Sunday night, you've got the wrong type of religion. So here's my final questions for you. Are you wasting your life by playing games with God? Question two. What is God doing right now to get your attention? If you're mad, that's a good thing. You've been paying attention. God, God has been stepping on your toes. You, your anger may be, <laughs> may be directed my way, but really, your problem is between you and the Lord. I just told you what the Bible says. I'm the mailman. I just put it in the slot. You didn't like what you read. Talk to the sender. The sender is Jesus. What is God doing right now to get your attention? Here's the third question. And here's a sobering question. How long do you have before God's deadline? There is one. How long do you have? You don't know. Today, may be the, today is the day to get saved. Today is the day to get right. Would you bow your head and would you close your eyes and let's have a word of prayer together. Father, now we